0: If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the book of Genesis. It's an easy book to find. Uh, First book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 5. And we are uh, continuing to work our way through these first 11 chapters. As a church, we've been here for a couple months and um, we'll be here for a little while yet. And they're important chapters because they lay the foundation for the world in which we live. They give us an understanding of why things are the way they are they describe for us everything that matters. And it's a completely unique perspective because it's the perspective of God on this world and the world in which we live. And so as we come to these chapters, where we are realizing now in chapter 4 and chapter 5 is that what is being described to us is two different humanities, two different communities. It's a way of looking at our world which maybe we haven't always thought about or maybe have never thought about before. But it's a way of viewing our world that arises out of is, is comes from Genesis chapter 3, 15, where there God describes two offspring, two communities, two different people. There are the community of those who are of the evil one, and they live outside of the presence of God. They live away from the presence of God. And there, there are a community of those people who will put their trust in God. Through Christ Jesus, who are of the offspring of the woman, which is Jesus Christ. In other words, it's a community of people who are born again through their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we come to this particular text, and what we're focusing on now is what do the community of the people of God look like? This humanity of those who are of the offspring of the woman who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. We looked at a couple of weeks ago. At least two weeks ago, what it looked like to be amongst those who lived outside of the presence of God. And you might remember that from chapter four of this particular uh, of Genesis, where there, for a number of verses, there was no reference to God at all. And we are described how Cain lived without any reference to God. He went away from the presence of God. He built a city in defiance of God. there he had children. Uh, There they pursued um, culture, there they pursued farming, there they pursued technology, and wickedness and sin multiplied rapidly among them. And so that was the community of those who embrace life outside of the presence of God. In contrast with that, we're now looking at how the Bible describes those who are among those of faith, those who believe in the promise of God, those who live as though God is real And as though God exists. And when you come to the line of Cain, which we just read, it was fascinating as we read it. I don't know if you noticed what wasn't there. There was not a single reference to any human accomplishment. There was not a single reference to a city or to culture or to technology. Rather, the whole focus was on their Godwardness, of how this line of people, this group of people, Set their attention on God, and it begins with begins with faith as she uh, with, with Eve as she lives in this world which is spiraling out of control, and we will see that next week when we get to Genesis chapter six, how quickly this world dove into evil and how it consumed humanity, and in the midst of that we have Eve who expressed her faith in the birth of Seth who would be a son now, an offspring of her in replacement of Abel, who had been killed by Cain, which again was an illustration of the hostility that would exist between these two communities. And then you come to uh, the first child born to Seth, which is Enoch. And Enoch, what does he do? What do we tell of Enoch? It says, and then people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's a completely different direction amongst those who live as though God is real and those who walk as though God doesn't exist. As we work through this, I want us to just think about the broad parameters of what marks or what characterizes or how do we, as people of God, live in this world in contrast to those who don't. We'll talk a little bit about those that live with God, have a focus that God is real, He exists, and that He created this world in which we live, that he blesses and he names us. We'll talk about Enoch, and Enoch is told, we are told here, that Enoch walked with God. In the midst of this world that he found himself, his focus was on God, the maker of this world, and in fact, God took him to another world, which is a thing that we've been chatting about is the spiritual realities amongst the physical realities. We'll consider Methuselah. And Methuselah was named with a particular meaning in his name to demonstrate not only the patience and the grace of God, but the certainty of God's coming judgment, which is again how we as a people of God live. We live in light of the fact that one day God is going to judge this world. And then we'll end by looking at Lamech, who in naming his son Noah, named his son Noah under the burden and weight of the curse that God had placed on this world because of sin. And Lamech was one that was looking for his redemption. He was looking for a deliverer. He was looking for the Lord to save him. And so these are the five ways in which we'll sort of demonstrate that from the line of Seth, the people of God, this is how they live. These are the things that fill their hearts and minds. There's two verses from the New Testament that I think summarize or help me put all of these into perspective. One of them is in Matthew 6.33 where after talking about all the things in the world that we look for, clothes and a roof over our head and food, Jesus says to his disciples, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Or Hebrews 11, where it speaks about how the people of God live. There it says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. These all died, not having received the things promised. And so what marks out the people of God is that they seek the kingdom of God, not building a kingdom for themselves. And they live by faith, not by sight. They live in the reality that God exists and that that changes everything. And then further behind chapter 5, we realize that it shows us how it is that we can live in such a crazy world. How it is that we can find our way when this world is just going out of control. Where sin seems to just be ramping up at every turn. Where temptations and where chaos and where evil just seems to be exploding. How do the people of God make it? How do we manage in such a world? And so the first thing is that we manage because we have a foundational commitment, a foundational conviction, and that conviction is that God exists. I don't think it's by accident that at the very beginning of the genealogy of, of Adam, we are taken back to creation, taken back to almost Genesis 1-1 and certainly some of the truths that are articulated in Genesis chapter two, or chapter 2. And I don't know if you realize how adversarial Genesis chapter 5, 1 to 2 is when God created man. Do you know how that is opposed in the world in which we live? Do you recognize how many people think that this world came from nothing? It just exploded into existence, some big bang, some evolutionary process, that all of a sudden the heavens began to exist and and creation began to exist. The Bible presents an entirely different cosmology, the Bible tells us that in the beginning God was before there was anything, and God acted in this space that was there, and he created the heavens and the earth. That's a foundational conviction of those who walk with God. That in the midst of all the other voices, we believe that in the beginning, God. And we believe that God spoke this world into existence. We believe that God created man. He created them male and female. There are two genders. We believe that we are created in his image and in his likeness, and that changes how we look at one another, how we view one another, how we view the people in the world in which we live. It creates a dignity of human life in us that so much is missing in the world around us. We have this confidence that we don't come from ooh and goo, but rather God created us from the dust of the earth and he made us male and female, unique from all the other creation in this world. And then notice what it says, that he blessed them and he named them. In other words, all of our existence in this world comes under the realization that all that we have, all that we experience, all the joys, all the pleasures, marriage, relationships, all of that is the blessing of God. And it takes us back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 where it says that God blessed us with marriage. God blessed us with fruit to eat. God blessed us with a ground that produced all kinds of things that we can eat. That God provided for our every need. Do you live with that recognition in your life? Do you look around at all that you have, your, your health or, or the, the, the help that you have as you're struggling with your health? Do you look at the clothes on your back? Do you look at the food in your fridge, in your freezer? Do you look at the money in your bank and say, God, thank you for blessing the work of my hands. Thank you for providing me with a home to live in. Thank you for giving me a godly wife or a godly husband. And notice it also says that he named them. Naming reminds us of ownership. Naming reminds us of intimate knowledge. We saw it back in Genesis 2 where Adam named the animals. That wasn't just a flippant thing. But God gave him incredible wisdom and insight into every created being so that he named that animal with a name that was appropriate to its biology, that was appropriate to its place on earth. And so God did the same with us. He had this intimate knowledge of us when he created us in our mother's womb, when he knit us together, when he formed us out of the dust of the ground. And he says, that is man being male and female. We think, too, of uh, Ephesians where it says that, uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Do you realize that, loved ones? If you know Jesus Christ, that's because God has blessed you with that Are you adopted into the family of God? That's because God has blessed you with that. Do you know something of of, of the blood of Christ and redemption? That is because God has given you a spiritual blessing in Christ. Everything you have, materially and spiritually, is because God has blessed you. The psalmist said, What is man that you have created him a little lower than the angels? He was blown away by the blessing of God Upon him. Jesus, when he was speaking to some who came to him and said, Why is there divorce? And before Jesus answered the question, he says this He says, Have you not read, He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Even Jesus, as he walked on this earth, walked with this conviction that God had created this earth and he had created man and woman to be on this earth. It's a foundational conviction. That those who live in the presence of God have. That God exists. He had made everything that exists. And he has blessed us and he has named us. That is how you walk through this world in these difficult times. You walk knowing that in spite of all that's going on, in spite of all the chaos, there is a God who made this world, who holds this world in his hand, who controls it, and who has made you and I. The second Conviction that arises amongst the people of God, which I think is described in Genesis chapter 5. And you see it there. It's that God is faithful. Well, what do you mean God is faithful? How do you get that from Genesis 5? Well, I think it's, it's, it's clear. God is faithful because he's true to his word. You can, there are very few things in this world that you can trust with 100% Confidence. There is so much that is out of our control. Even when somebody makes a promise to us, we, we, we hope that they will keep it. We know their character and we believe that they will keep it. But there are so many things that can happen that will make it difficult, if not impossible, for them to keep their word to you. But God's word will always come to pass. And you see that because in Genesis 3.15, God had promised that there would be a seed of the woman that would crush the head of Satan and deliver humankind from their sinfulness and all of a sudden we're walking along and Abel is killed and the promise of God is is now where is it going to come from Cain has left the presence of God Adam and Eve have no other children at this point or no other male children is this promise ever going to be fulfilled is God going to be able to provide a deliverer that will save us from our sins and will crush the evil one And then you read, and Adam and Eve had another boy, and they named him Seth. And then you read that Seth had a boy, and named him Enosh. And you read that Enosh had a boy, and named him, and named him, and named him, and named him. And there you have ten generations of the faithfulness of God. Ten generations of God saying, no, my promise will stand. No, I am faithful. No, my word is secure. Genesis chapter 5 is a reminder to us of the faithfulness of God to his promises and to his word. This is a conviction, again, then, of you and I who walk in this world. We believe that what God says will happen. We believe that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. We believe with all of our heart that even though we might not see the promise in our lifetime, we live knowing that one day that promise will be fulfilled. In fact, all of the people in Hebrews chapter 11 are described as having a hope in a city to come, and all of them died believing in the promise, but not yet having received it. They believed in that promise because God is faithful. And so, as we walk in this world, these difficult days in which we live, and we wonder, God, what are you up to? God, are you going to be able to solve this? God, what of your promise? Don't doubt it. Say, No, God, I believe your word. You've done it before. You'll do it again. You are the ever-present, ever never-changing God. You are sovereign. You are leading this world providentially by your might. You are omniscient. I trust you, God. No matter what goes on in my world, I trust you. The third thing that I think we see in this particular text is that those who live in this world as though God exists... Embrace a life-changing reality. And that's that God is personal. Sometimes it's, 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 it's easy to create a distance between our gods, whether they're Starbucks or whether there's something more significant than that, which might be our wealth or whether it be our intellect. Um, we create so many gods, but often they are impersonal. And sometimes we think of God as a God who is way up there. A God who is transcendent. And he certainly is that. He is distinct from his creation. He is apart from his creation. But God is also imminent. He also comes and he lives among us. He walks among us. In fact, Jesus, one of his names was Emmanuel, which is God with us. And so of this man Enoch, nothing is said of him except this one thing. Enoch Walked with God. Isn't that astounding? Like this God who made this world and everything in it. This God who is outside of time. This God who is powerful beyond anything we can imagine. We can walk with that God. And we do walk with that God. He walked with God in a time when it was anything but easy to walk with God because so few people walked with God. We'll look at this when we look at Noah next week and uh, the world in which Noah lived. And there, one of the descriptions is, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, that every intention of his thoughts and of his heart was only evil continually. Does that not describe the world in which we live? And yet in the midst of a world like that, it says that Enoch walked with God. He had a personal relationship with God. He had communion with God. That is the joy and the privilege of the children of God. As I was talking uh, earlier uh, this morning, that God is real. He is intimate. And as we live in the world, what do we do? We go and tell people what God has done for us. He's personal. There is stuff that God has done for me that he hasn't done for you. But it demonstrates the personal relationship that I have with God. There's so much more said of Enoch in the New Testament than in the Old Testament. If you have your Bibles and you can find it, the book of Jude is um, just before the last book of the Bible's Revelation. It's two pages, literally. And in the book of Jude, we have a reference to Enoch the same Enoch that is mentioned here in Genesis chapter 5. In, Genesis, in Jude verse 14, it says, And it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, and this is what Enoch talked about in the world in which he lived. Remember this. This is how Enoch spoke. This is what he communicated to those around us. He prophesied, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones, to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That's quite a message, isn't it? That's quite a, a way of talking to those that are around you. But Jude is very clear that, first of all, this Enoch is the seventh from Adam. So don't get it mixed up with the Enoch that is third from Adam in the line of Cain. This Enoch is amongst those who live as though God exists. He's one who lives in the presence of God. He walks with God. This Enoch was a preacher. He he went about, in the midst of this world in which he lived, he went about talking to them about God and and saying to them, listen, you need to turn from your ungodly ways. You need to turn from your ungodly deeds. You need to turn from your ungodly thinking. You need to turn away from your ungodly speaking. You have to give that all up because God is going to come and judge this world. It's not an easy message, but it's a true message. This world is not all there is and how we live in this world matters. And Enoch was one, who God had placed a burden in his heart for those around him. Again, those who live in the presence of God and live as though God is real, realize that God will one day finally judge this earth. And that was Enoch's message. As he walked with God, he spoke about God. He didn't just walk with God, he spoke with God to other people. Walking with God isn't just a private matter. It's not just a matter of, oh, I'll walk with God and hope somebody asks me, or maybe I hope that nobody asks me about it. But we don't. walking with God means not only that we have a relationship with God, but that we speak for God, and we speak about God to those that are around us. Hebrews 11 tells us more about Enoch. If you want to turn to Hebrews 11, you can find there what it says about Enoch. In Enoch chapter 11, starting at verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, so before God said, Enoch, let's go home, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. You say, well, what does it look like to please God? Why is it that Enoch was commended before God took him to heaven that God looked on him with favor? How do we receive the commendation of God? Well, you have to go to verse 6 then. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. So he was a man of faith. That's how he was commended to God forever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists. So Enoch walked in this confidence that God existed. As I said back in the first point I made, Enoch was a man convinced in the reality of God. Convinced in what Adam and Eve had told him about God. Convinced in how this world came into being. He was a man who draw near to God and believed that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There's a wonderful privilege that comes from walking with God. There's a wonderful reality that as we walk with God and we trust with God and we walk with him to the end of our lives, that we inherit eternal life, that we will not see eternal death. And so Enoch walked with God with such conviction that he believed in God even though he couldn't see him. And that he believed that God existed even though he couldn't see him. And he believed that God would reward him for his faith. So Enoch was a man of faith. That's what the people of God are marked by. By faith. We walk with so much that we believe in the word of God, but we don't see with our eyes. We believe them to be true. We believe God's word to be true. And so to walk with God, what does it mean to walk with God? It doesn't have to be complicated. To walk with God simply means that God is open to a relationship with him. That I can walk with him and I can talk with him. That I know that he exists. That I know that he hears me. And then I know that he speaks with me, and I know that he leads me, and he guides me, and that he's my shepherd. It means that I walk in agreement with God, that I have an intimate relationship with God. I don't know about you, but I find myself talking with God almost all my waking hours. I wake up in the morning, and, and within minutes, I'm, I'm just talking to God. Throughout the day, I face certain circumstances, or I think about stuff, or I see stuff, and I start talking to God. When I fall asleep at night, I often fall asleep at night talking to God. It's what we do with our kids. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 6 tells us that uh, those who are Christian parents, you love God with all your might and with all your heart and with all your soul. And then you walk and talk with your kids when you get up, when you walk by the way, when you sit down, when you go to bed at night. You're always talking to them about God. And so walking with God just means I'm in communion with God. And I'm in communion with God because I believe that He exists and that He hears my prayers. And Enoch walked with God over the course of at least 65 years in this intimate communion or relationship with God. Not a race, not a sprint, just day in, day out. This is one of the most wonderful things about Christianity is you can have a relationship with God. You can come out of darkness. You can come out of thinking that there is no God. And you can come to the realization and then experience a relationship with the living God through Jesus Christ. Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. God says, come, let us reason together. The invitations of God to enter into a relationship are everywhere, but we enter into that relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's amazing that at the end of this life, short life in comparison, it's like Enoch and God were out walking one day. That's kind of how I picture it. They're out walking one day and it's getting late and Enoch is in conversation with God. he says, well, God, you know, I, I gotta go home now. My wife's got dinner on the table. Gotta close up the tent. Gotta make sure the livestock are all right. And God says, you know, Enoch, Let's go to my house tonight. And he takes him home. And he was not because God took him home. And in the midst of that, loved ones, you also see what's going on. There is the reality that this world is not all there is. There is a world to come. There is a heaven to be gained. There is a new heaven and a new earth that God is going to create in which we will, those who are in Christ, will live on in eternity. And we see this all the way back in Genesis, this realization of a spiritual reality, of a heaven and of an earth. How do you live? Do you live as an alien and stranger in this world? Do you live with a passport to heaven in your back pocket? This is how the people of God live. This world is not our home. Heaven is our home. Fourthly, the people of God, those who live as though God exists, live with a sobering knowledge or in a sobering reality that God's going to judge this world. And you see that when you think about Methuselah. You say, how does Methuselah have anything to do with reminding us of the judgment of God? I don't know this for sure, but I... There there seems to be enough evidence in Scripture that something must have taken place in the 300th year of, of, of Enoch's life. Because it says, after Methuselah was born, he walked with God. So there was something significant that happened right around the time of Methuselah's birth. And I think there must have been something that God came and spoke to Enoch in some way, revealed to Enoch somehow that He was going to finally judge the world. And in the knowledge of that, Enoch named his son Methuselah. Do you know what Methuselah means? When he is dead, it shall come. That seems to be the dominant meaning of the name Methuselah. When he is dead, it shall come. And you work that through a little bit in your head. And for me, then that says, okay, God must have said something to Enoch. God must have revealed something of the future to Enoch, as he has done to us. Sometimes more specifically to certain people, sometimes more generally, as he has to all of us in his word. As long as Methuselah lived, the flood was restrained. When he is dead, it shall come. It's very much like in Second Thessalonians we saw that lawlessness is restrained until the restrainer is taken out of the world. So here in Genesis 5, we find that very likely, as long as Methuselah lived... God held back the flood. Isn't it fascinating that Methuselah is the oldest man that ever lived? 969 years. If you follow the chronologies that are presented in Genesis 5, you realize that Methuselah died the year of the flood. When he is dead, it shall come. Methuna, Methuselah was a living testimony of the certainty of the judge of God judgment of God but methuselah was also a demonstration of the grace of God and of the patience of God the longest man who ever lived upon whose death the flood would come it's God saying i'm going to judge the world but i'm going to be gracious to it first I'm going to be patient to it. And then you go to 2 Peter chapter 3, which is also in the context of the flood and of the second coming of the Lord. And it says that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but all to come to life. That just as God was patient in the days of Noah, holding back the flood until Methuselah died, God is patient in our day, holding back his day of judgment so that we might come to know him personally. But that day of judgment is certainly coming. What God has done once in the flood, in judging the whole world, God will do another time in the destruction of this world. Peter tells us that God will, in the end of this age, destroy this world by fire. Peter tells us that. What's interesting to me is then Peter also describes, so what kind of people ought you to be in light of the fact that one day God is going to judge this earth and destroy it by fire? He says this, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day... He will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away with flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth that he has promised. A world filled with God's righteousness. So we are to live holy and godly lives. And we are to look forward to that day. When God will establish and create a new heavens and a new earth. So here in the life of Methuselah. We're reminded of the patience of God, of the grace of God, of the withholding of judgment, but also of the inevitability of judgment. Do you think of this from day to day? Are you clear in your head that one day God will say, enough, and he will judge this world in righteousness, and Jesus will come again. The people of God live with that conviction. And so strong was that conviction in Enoch's life that he named his son Methuselah. When he is dead, it shall come. The fifth thing I think that we see about the people of God from this chapter 5 is an abiding hope. And we see it in the life of Lamech. He's the last person before Noah that's named in this genealogy of faith. And that's what I think. You know, we've got Hebrews chapter 11, which is, uh, we call it the hall of faith. I wonder if we could say that uh, Genesis chapter 5 is the Old Testament version of Hebrews chapter 11. This, too, is a hall of faith. We see it in, in, in Eve. We see it in Seth. We see it in Enoch. We see it in Methuselah. and Now we see it in Lamech. Again, don't get confused with the Lamech that is in the line of Cain who was just extraordinarily evil. Listen to the two words, the difference of these men's word. One of them revels in their sin. The other one is in pain and anguish because of sin. Two completely different perspectives on the world. The, Lamech, um, the line of Seth in chapter five is one who believed the word of God as to why the world is The way it is. Do you you think that? Do you look at the world and why is the world like it is? Some people say, well, actually, the world's getting pretty good. Some would say, well, actually, the world's not that bad. Actually, we name all the things we don't like in this world different names so that we like it better, but it's still the same. But then there are people who live with the recognition that there is such a thing as sin. And the world is why it is, is because God has cursed the world because of sin. And so Lamech was one of those kind of people. That's how the people of God live. We live understanding that the world is the way it is, is because of sin. And because of God's judgment upon the sin of this world and the curse. And we have a longing to be released from that. We have a longing personally And we have a longing in our world. And in fact, creation, it says, longs and groans and moans for the day of redemption. It too wants to be released from the curse of sin. Lamech understood why the world was as it was. He says there in his, his, as he's naming uh, Noah, uh, he says there, he says, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief. He was tired of his sin. He was tired of the craziness of the world. He was tired of the murders. He was tired of the pain. He was tired of the sexual wildness gone crazy. And he longed for God to send a redeemer. Is that how you think? When you get up and you read the news or when you get up in the, or you're in the middle of the day and you look at some of your blogs and you see the devastation and the pain and the hurt and the deception in the world. You say, oh God, give us deliverance. Oh God, free us from the curse that this world is under. Lamech endured the ongoing burden of sins and its consequence because he had a hope a hope in a redeemer. He believed the promise of Genesis 3.15. He believed that God would crush the head of Satan through one of the offspring of Eve. As I read this, I was thinking of some of the people in the time of the birth of Jesus. Simeon, who was in the temple one day and he was longing to see the birth of Messiah. Remember, the Holy Spirit, had said, had promised him that he would not see death until the Messiah, until his eyes were set on the Messiah. And then we read of, uh, uh, of Anna, who was 84 years old and was in the temple constantly, night and day coming up on that very hour when Jesus was there, she began to give thanks to God and speak to him and to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. That is the people of God. When we gather together, one of our themes should be, oh, when is Jesus coming back? Oh, I can't wait to see Jesus again. We we sang that in one of the songs that we sang. I'm longing for for Jesus to come back. That is a mark of the people of God. We are tired of sin. We are tired of the curse and we are wanting the promise of God to send his son to be fulfilled. That's a mark of the people of God. Are you longing for a redeemer? He's already come a first time, but he's gonna come a second time. Are you longing for the return of Christ? Do you every once in a while look up into the heavens and think, today, maybe those clouds will part, and maybe I'll see him coming in all his power and his glory and his might. Oh, that he would deliver us from the curse that we are under. So these, I think, are some of the foundations that we find in Genesis 5 of the convictions of the people of God that mark them out from those that live as though there is no God. We have a conviction that God is real, that he exists, that he made us and he created us. We have a confidence that God is faithful and we can trust his word. We have this life-changing personal reality that we've experienced that God is relational and God is personal and we can say, I walk with him and I talk with him and he tells me I am his own. We live with this certain sobering reality that one day God is going to judge this world. And we have this abiding hope that there is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own Son. And one day He's coming back to get me. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace, when He takes me by the hand and leads me to the promised land, what a day! glorious day that will be. You can know this, Jesus. Put your faith in him today and enter into a relationship with the living God. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It's such a help. We live in dark days. We live in difficult days. But Father, you have shown us in your word in this early book in the Bible that even As the world started, there were those who walked by faith. You brought them out of their captivity and their darkness and the kingdom that they were in. You pulled them out of the power of Satan and you brought them into your wonderful kingdom and gave them a hope that one day you would send a redeemer, Jesus Christ. Father, help us as we go about our week this week to think about some of these things, to remind ourselves, to be encouraged of them because these are things that mark us out as your children and as your people. Thank you for your word. Such an encouragement. In Christ's name we pray, amen.